0: Welcome to The Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hi, I'm Bob Shrum, Director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. And we're gonna kick off today's Warsaw Conference with a conversation with Dr. Lawrence H. Summers, the Charles W. Elliott University Professor at Harvard, the President Emeritus of Harvard, one of the world's leading economists. He was 71st Secretary of the Treasury during the Clinton administration, where he was the only Treasury Secretary in the last half century to leave office with a national budget in surplus. He also served as Director of the White House National Economic Council in the Obama administration, and the chief economist of the World Bank. I've known Larry for almost 50 years, and I'm very grateful he agreed to be with us today. So Larry, let me start with this question. You were an early critic of President Biden's COVID-19 economic stimulus package, and I don't think it was an easy thing for you to do, but you described it as the least responsible macroeconomic policy we've had in the last 40 years. With employment rising, And growth again accelerating, but inflation also persistently high. Do you stand by that judgment? I think it was a real mistake.
1: I think that the
0: impulses were all
1: completely correct. And there have been some important benefits in terms of higher economic uh, growth and in terms of lots of people who've been able to come back to work. But my prediction was that we were just throwing. Too much money at the economy, given what the economy's capacity was going to be, and that was going to translate into uh, inflation and Bob, when I was an undergraduate in college and you were a wise man already involved extensively in politics, you taught me about the toxic political consequences of uh, inflation, and that was what I was uh, fearful uh, of that. When inflation accelerates, people see it as a sign that government doesn't have things under control. People exaggerate what it really means for their standard of living because they give themselves credit for every bit of wage increase. And they see inflation as robbing them of uh, purchasing power. And I was fearful that there would be a dynamic of uh, that kind. And I thought with respect to inflation, managing the psychology was really important and that we were making the kinds of mistakes that got made in the 1960s when people felt really strong urges for spending and they convinced themselves that it would be okay in terms of inflation. And that view often can turn out to be wrong. And I think it has in this case.
0: Uh, did we overlearn the lessons of two thousand eight, two thousand nine? Is that what happened here that, that was, that's talk? some of
1: that's some of what happened. In two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, the stimulus in retrospect was too small. Many people blame me for that. I don't think that's fair. My advice at the time was to spend as much as we could get through the Congress quickly, but we had to get something through the Congress quickly and The political people made a judgment as to how much that would be. And I think their judgment was probably correct given how narrow the margin is. But in any event, from an economic point of view, it would have been better if we'd had more fiscal stimulus then. But here's the key point. It might've been better to have 50% more stimulus then. It might've been better to have twice as much stimulus then. If you measure the stimulus in 2021 relative to the GDP gap, relative to the problem. It was five to 10 times as large as what we did in 2008, 2009. And there's no one who looks back at 2009 and says we should have done 10 times as much or even five times as much. So yes, I think we did overlearn that lesson. I think it's probably less that we did the wrong economic calculation then that we decided we didn't need to do a macroeconomic calculation. We had to do a certain set of tax benefits because of the Georgia senatorial election. We had to do a certain amount of this because of relations with the state and local governments. And we had to do a certain amount of the other thing because it had been promised in a campaign. And we had to do a certain amount of the other thing because it was a key congressional imperative. And we sort of added all that up and decided we just had to do it. And the problem was, from the point of view of the macro economy, it didn't work that well.
0: So what do you say to administration and some Fed officials who contend that the inflation we're seeing is transitory? It's not due to fiscal policy, but to a tight labor market and supply chain issues. And beyond that, what would you do now to deal with the inflation problem?
1: So there are two parts of that. Uh, First, I try politely to remind them that they said inflation would be 2% during 2021. Then they said in the summer that inflation would be over by fall. Then they said in the early fall that inflation would be uh, over by early next year. And now they're saying that it's going to be over by the second half of the year. The fact that they've been wrong so much should lead them to reconsider their models and their degrees of uh confidence then i say to them why i'm worried that an inflation psychology might be becoming entrenched you're seeing cost of living allowances come back into labor contracts you're seeing some really profound things in the housing market where house prices and rents are up almost 20% most of which hasn't fed into the price index yet, but housing is 40% of the course consumer price index. Then I say to them that the inflation, which had seemed narrowly confined to used cars and a few other products, is now there in beef. It's now there in basic services, almost whatever you uh, look at. You actually have businesses saying to their suppliers, look, I'm happy to pay more if you can assure me of reliability. Well, when you've got people asking for price increases, you're probably not looking at an inflation situation that's about to get better of its own accord very quickly. So I think there's a lot of evidence that inflation's being entrenched. What should happen? The Fed needs to move sooner rather than later. Look, Bob, we've got the biggest rate of house price increase in any 12-month period since they had statistics, faster than in the housing bubble in 2006. And yet, we've got the Federal Reserve buying mortgage-backed securities because for some reason they think it's important to reduce mortgage rates further below 3%. I just don't see the logic. I also think that and it's, I recognize how painful it is given the many trade offs. We've asked OPEC to produce more oil. How about producing more oil here? Is this really the right time for a major initiative against fracking? I'm not sure that it really is the right thing. So I think we need to look at all of our policies through uh, the prism of what they mean for prices. Look, uh, Our tariffs are raising prices. That's their purpose. But that's not what we really need right now. So I would be looking, you know, you you don't just make concessions, you have to negotiate with other countries. But our objective should be to be reducing tariffs. Our objective should be to be buying things in the most inexpensive ways. Our objective should be to be producing more energy so gas prices can come down and people can heat their
0: homes at lower costs. Those are things that will break the inflation psychology. Let me talk about the contrast between what you're saying about this and what you said about the $1.2 billion bipartisan infrastructure bill, which has passed, and the Build Back Better bill, which will cost somewhere between $1.5 and $1.8 eight trillion, which the president hopes to pass. I think it was only yesterday that you said, I think it's fine. The 10 years of the two spending bills together are A, less than a year of what they did last spring, and B, unlike what they did last spring, are paid for by tax increases. So I don't think that's an inflation problem. I think a lot of it is vitally needed investments in the future. Why do you think there's such strong partisan opposition to the two bills? And has the administration failed to message them correctly because the media are focusing on the price tags and not the specific elements of the bills.
1: So first of all, I learned about 40 or 50 years ago that I may know something about economics, but if I'm in a conversation about political messaging, I'm better off taking Bob Shrum's opinion (laughs) than I am providing my own opinion. So I I don't have a strong opinion about what the right message is. I think that there's partisan opposition about this because there's partisan opposition about almost everything in uh, today's America. And there's just a desire on the part of many Republicans in Congress to see the president fail and who fundamentally have ambivalent feelings about uh, success. There are also differences in a philosophy about how much the government. Should, uh, should do. You know, I think in all kinds of areas, Bob, that we need to have a kind of philosophy of both and rather than either or. Look, I think Democrats are right that we need to spend much more money on infrastructure. I think Republicans are right that we can find ways of involving the private sector more, that we need to hire people as efficiently as possible, that we need to not spend five or 10 years on environmental siting. I think when it comes to issues around education, Democrats are right that they want to infuse more resources into the system. Republicans often are right that we need higher standards. We need to make sure we curb administrative bloat and that we focus on uh, the most important parts of the material. So I think there's, Polarization on both sides that we would uh, usefully get past. I do think, and this is something I learned from from you. People know about their lives. People don't know bipartisan bill from reconciliation uh, bill from filibuster from green slip from uh, override uh, veto from Trillion-dollar price tags versus billion-dollar price tags. People know about what the price of gasoline is. People know about whether their house is more expensive. People know whether their kids getting a uh, experience going to college uh, that's affordable. And I think that the debate over these bills has been framed in the language of congressional staff rather than the language of people's lives and that's kind of led to a certain amount of disillusionment. But again, I'm very much an amateur on uh, the messaging. Yeah,
0: you say you're an amateur. You were damn smart in the way you talked about that. I think that this has all been ledge speak, and we haven't been talking about, or Democrats haven't been talking about, for example, the benefits of universal pre-K, which is widely supported. So I think you're absolutely right about that. I also think that the endless legislative sausage-making has had an impact as well. This has just gone on for months and months and months, and people, I think, begin to believe, combined with your comments on inflation, that the government is dysfunctional. But in terms of economics, you feel comfortable with these two bills. Yeah,
1: I think these, I, I think these bills redress a balance between private and public investment that has been out of kilter for a long time in the United States. I mean, think about this. On the one hand, when I get on an airplane to fly from Washington to Boston, I can choose between watching TV shows on 200 channels during the hour and 20-minute trip. On the other hand, that trip takes half an hour longer than it took 40 years ago when I started making. And that's not because engine technology's gotten worse. <laughs> and it's not because Washington or Boston has moved. It's because the country hasn't kept up with, S- with investments in infrastructure or with investments in uh, the air traffic control system. And if you think about it, that contrast between the basically frivolous move to 200 channels that's driven by what the airlines are doing, and the fact that it's taking much longer, which is driven by what the public sector is not doing, captures what is an important part of what's centrally wrong in how our economy is functioning. I mean, this is not a new idea with Harvard professor Larry Summers. It was famously enunciated by Harvard professor John Kenneth Galbraith in the affluent society in 1958 but we're now at a point in the long cycle where it's really true and build back better is an attempt to do a variety of things that are moving in a uh in a better uh in a better in a better direction you know which is fundamentally more important, reducing my latency time on my computer with 5G something or other from two milliseconds to half a millisecond or enabling millions of people in America who still don't have access to the internet uh, to get it. I think those are pretty fundamental questions about our society.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about the politics of all this because under President Clinton and President Obama, Larry, you were involved in economic policies that ultimately yielded very positive outcomes. But in the near term, uh, the off-year elections of 1994 and 2010 inflicted what President Obama called a shellacking on the Democrats. How do you think people serving in both of those administrations would assess what happened and how do you avoid it being repeated in 2022 so there i'm giving you a politics question did you expect what happened say in in 2010 or 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 94 i did not expect it to be as bad as it
1: was i did expect it to be bad i expected that in part because in republican and democratic administrations alike As you well know, midterm elections go badly for presidents unless uh, there's a big surprise. And that legislation is always excruciating to watch and delivers benefits over time. So I think that you made, there is an argument that the shellackings in 94 and in 2000 and whatever it was, 2010 are part of a process that led to the strong re-elections in uh, 1996 and in 2012. You know, President Carter didn't have as bad a midterm election, but it didn't work out so well for him uh, when it came time to re-election. So to some extent, I think presidents do the right thing by doing the right thing, and Recognizing that it may take a little while for its full benefits uh, to become apparent. That's one part of, of the answer. I think the second part of the answer is you do have to make it real for people. And I think in the case of President Clinton, there was a kind of quixotic effort. To pass an overly ambitious, non-credible healthcare bill that required enormous trust in government at a time when there wasn't enormous trust in government. And I think that's a risk for, uh, President Biden that they're asking more of government than people want from government right now. I don't think people are looking for Franklin Roosevelt. They're looking for help to be on the way. They're not looking for a broad social revolution. And I think if there's an attempt made and it's portrayed as an attempt to give them a broad social revolution, they will reject it. They're looking for a respite from the insanity of Donald Trump. They're looking for a help with uh, their kids. They're looking for help, a sense that the planet's not going to melt. They're looking for affordable health care to which they can get access. They're looking to get their normal lives back after COVID, and they want to see a government that wants to show them that, not a government that wants to pursue a kind of elite intellectual agenda of social transformation. And I think in different ways the sense that what they were being offered was an elite agenda of social transformation, was the source of the Clinton administration because of health care, and the uh, Obama administration because of Styles' central problem in the midterm elections. And so my advice is help is on the way is the right theme. Social transformation is the wrong theme.
0: We seem to be having a faster recovery than we did in 2008. Uh, Why is that? Is it policy or is it the nature of the two crises? Both. I think it's heavily
1: that everybody had to stay home, and that led to a catastrophic decline. And now people can go out, and so there's a rapid recovery. It's like one is a more classic business cycle. The other is what happens after the hurricane, uh, after the hurricane goes away and the sun comes out and it, recoveries are faster after the second. I think that's the most fundamental thing. I think secondarily, we did too little stimulus in, uh, 2008 and we're doing too, we're doing too much now. You know, it's cold and, uh, we lit a fire. And so it gets warm fast. It may get too warm, but we didn't light a fire uh, in nearly the same way the first time. So, but I think the more important thing is the difference in the two cycles in terms of how they
0: started. But the
1: policy is also part of the answer, Bob.
0: Larry, was it a tough decision for you to criticize the Biden administration uh, for its initial one point nine trillion dollar stimulus? And what kind of reactions have you gotten? From some of your old colleagues after doing this? You know,
1: Bob, there's always a question as to how one thinks about obligations of loyalty versus obligations of truth telling as one sees it. My view when I've been in government was that nobody elected me, I was elected to serve the president, and my job was to be loyal to the president even when I thought he was wrong. And so I vigorously would defend positions that would not have been the choices that I would have made. When I, frankly, when I didn't much like the choices, I would tend to say the president believes very strongly. <laughs> I believe very stro- very strongly. But in all my public comments, when I was in an administration, I thought my job was to advance the policy, and I thought it was wrong when I didn't like a policy to try to leak, to undermine the policy. But my view, when I'm not in government, have not recently been in government, and am a, and my job is to be a Harvard professor, my view is that my job is to tell the truth as I see it, and to offer economic analysis. I do not go after individuals. Even when I have a view as to which individual is doing things for the wrong reasons or which individual is being stupid, as I would see it, I, I'm sure I've slipped up on occasion, but I try to never be critical of individuals. But I do try to offer on public policy questions uh, honest analysis because I think that it is the way in which I can uh, best contribute. I also think that in the end, it often can end up being more valuable even to some of the people who don't like it. You know, right now there's a lot of debate about whether or not the Build Back Better bill is going to be inflationary or not. and As we've discussed, I don't think it's going to be inflationary. I think because I was willing to say that the other bill was inflationary, I may have more impact saying this one is not going to be inflationary than a standard-issue Democratic economist who says all the things... That, uh, the, that administrations believe. So I tend to think it's the right thing to err on the side of politely and analytically, uh, speaking truth as one sees it. But there are others who think that I've got the wrong approach and think that there's some obligation of loyalty to the Political project in which one is a part, that's a larger value. And I can see both sides of it. For me, the choice I've made is to never go after personalities, even when you think there are true and negative things to say, but to be prepared to give honest analysis as one sees it.
0: I'm going to ask you one last question before we wind this up. Amid all of the turmoil, all of the political angst, all of the back and forth, what are we not paying enough attention to in America right now?
1: I think there are two things, Bob. One is we are under-focused on preparing for the next pandemic relative to how focused we are on other threats. There's less than 2% as much money in the Build Back Better bill about preparing for the next COVID as there is preparing for the next climate change. But more Americans will die in the next 25 years due to future pandemics than will die due to climate change. We are not doing enough to make sure that we can get a vaccine in three months rather than one year next time, to make sure that there's an inventory of masks from day one, to make sure that we have Uh, universal set of testing that's available. So the future public health risks are not getting the attention they deserve. I think we're not doing enough to try to push back towards a culture that is based on trying to discover the truth and enunciating it, rather than coming to judgments Based on loyalty or based on feeling. There were staggering sins in that regard of the Trump administration and of President Trump who just denied reality and believed in uh, the power of repetition and volume over the power of truth. But I think there is some of that among people from virtually all perspectives. Uh, so supporting a an educational system, but more broadly an epistemic approach that is based on trying to figure out what's true rather than just what you want to be true. And pushing that out there is a issue that's never the most important issue in the next month or the next year. But the ability of our system to do that is, I think, an important part of the reason why our system has lasted as long as it has. And I worry that if we don't rediscover that, the issues will change, but the enduring value of honest debate and the search for truth is going to be there no matter what the issues are. And I think it deserves more emphasis.
0: Well, Larry, I want to say this was enlightening. It was provocative. I admire your insights, your intellect, and your candor as much as I first did half a century ago. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Bob. It was great to be with you. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. At USC POL Future, that's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.
1: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.